Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, it's very good of you to come on such a lovely afternoon. And uh, my name is Anne Spokes-Simons. I'm going to talk about Havens Across the Sea, uh, which is based on the diaries and reminiscences of those who were evacuated to Canada uh, and the United States in 1940. At the start of the Second World War, children were evacuated from large towns at risk of being bombed to places considered safe, uh, such as the countryside and towns, uh, even Oxford. And that was September 1939, soon after war began. As you probably know, it's 70 years ago this month. But by June 1940... Invasion was thought to be extremely likely. Dunkirk had just been, uh, had come and gone. And Dr. Moyd Royden uh, um, sort of sums it up quite well. Um, she says, to many British people, the fear that their children could be brought up Nazis was worse even than the fear of death. She's talking to the Americans now. Will you Americans, vowed as you are to freedom, look for a moment at your children and ask what so dreadful a threat would mean to them? This meant that um, invitations came flooding in, especially from Toronto, uh, from Yale universities and from Smallthmore College, direct to Oxford and Cambridge. I think probably the Rhodes Scholars had quite a lot to do with this. In the Yale alumni magazine, a few months later, uh, they had an account of how it all began there. Uh, and this is a quote. About commencement time, June 1940, the idea was born. Half a dozen faculty members put their name to an initial statement. It came to be known as, wait for it, Yale Faculty Committee for Receiving Oxford and Cambridge University Children. So it was quite a mouthful. Uh, this result in, resulted in 390 offers for a total of 247 children. And in the event, uh, those who went from Oxford consisted of 125 children, 25 mothers, mostly the ones who had babies and, and young children, and one doctor. Dr. Kenneth Franklin, who was acting dean of the Oxford Medical School. And now we come to the preparations for this journey. <clears throat> Life at Oxford during warm June days continued much as usual. Yellow signs pointing to ARP, air raid precautions, posts and blackout curtains were often the only external evidence of the emergency. In the summer member of the American Oxonian, the writer of the Oxford letter said, he explained this, old rowing men will realize that it would take nothing less than a German submarine in the ISIS to interfere with Eights Week. And that's how things were. It was all very calm and peaceful. Felicity, who I'm going to quote quite a bit, Felicity Hugh, who Jones, who became Mrs. Arnott. I'm going to quote her quite a bit because she wrote a perfectly wonderful diary. The preparations that summer seemed like endless shopping for warm vests and such, of course abandoned by our hosts in centrally heated houses, and the provision of large blue fibre 
suitcases painted with an identifying yellow band. Uh, I still have one of them, complete with type list inside. Uh, inside the lid, my father carefully translating plimsolls into sneakers. Another um, recollection from Mrs. Betty Hume Rothery. I was unlucky in the mother's ballot. The, the only a certain number of, of mothers could, could go. Jennifer was only five, and her cousin John Fee, aged eight, and they were going to go alone until one family's measles made a vacancy for her. Now, measles was a real problem because they had, we were quarantined in the hope that perhaps we wouldn't catch any. But the Dragon School had measles, and that caused a few problems later. I mean, we were lucky to get to America at all because um, some people would have said that we needed to stay in quarantine. She goes on, though few days now remained, I then had to, had to spend one precious one in London, joining a long queue at the Foreign Office in a possibly fruitless, fruitless quest for a permit to leave the country. However, when the tired-faced but courteous young man whose office I eventually penetrated took one look at the fair curly head and smiling face in Jennifer's passport, he just said, this child needs her mother with her, signed the form, so she went with the rest. There were meetings of parents... Um, they held these meetings regularly at Rhodes House, rather appropriately. Um, <clears throat> to qualify, um, your parents, and of course in those days it was usually the father, had to be employed uh, by the university. <clears throat> I remember one day my parents coming back and saying they were very sorry they got a disappointment for us. Well, we were just, you know, raring to go, and we were very worried about this. It meant we weren't going to go. Uh, but in the event, it was just to say that we were going to the United States and not to Canada. And actually, we were both delighted with that. Um, in June, parents signed papers agreeing to the evacuation to Canada and the USA of their child or children, authorising the foster parents to take decisions of any kind on their behalf. I think, you know, you can compare this with, with the children being evacuated in this country where there was absolutely no communication, virtually no communication between the parents and the schools, or certainly not. They didn't even know where they, the children were going to go. The first stage of the journey, of course, this meant parents saying goodbye to their children and they didn't know when they'd see again, if at all. Um, we, they were able to come and see us off at the railway station if they wanted to. Here again, we were lucky. Most London parents um, of evacuees, they weren't allowed to go to the station, the railway station. The last time they saw their children was farewell when they went to school, because, of course, meant that the children didn't really have any idea uh, of how long they were going to be away for, where they were going. So um, some of the fathers, of course, were already in the forces, and so they couldn't um, say farewell. So four-year-old Martin Hugh Jones, he got a letter from his father, which just said, London, June 25th, 1940. Darling boy... This is a little note. This was all in big capital letters with kisses at the bottom. Darling boy, this is a little note to bring you your daddy's love on your big adventure. Just say to yourself, will you, daddy loves me very much, and be sure that it won't be very long before there is another big ship for all of us. 
always your loving daddy. You can imagine how difficult it was for parents to say goodbye. <clears throat> and um, Felicity again, for many of us the goodbyes at Oxford on that warm 8th July Monday, although sad and tearful, were soon forgotten in the excitement of the journey and the thoughts of the sea voyage, because a lot of us, most of us, I think, had never even been abroad in, in those days. Um, so it was very difficult. Um, I should have said that um, getting onto the train where the mothers went too with the, with the youngest children, um, uh, Mr. Macbeth, who was the ear, nose and throat surgeon at the, the Radcliffe Infirmary, um, his, his, letter, his son, you know, patted the seat and come, said, come along, Daddy, expecting Daddy to go as well. Um, and it was very difficult for parents. Um, one of the children, as the uh, train moved away, um, she, she called out to her family and friends, uh, apparently, she says, wouldn't it be fun if we were torpedoed? And this brought back all the problems to the, to the parents. I mean, that um, one of the ships had already been uh, torpedoed, and some of the parents had actually withdrawn their children because of that. Um, one of the mothers wrote later to her husband, I'm sorry I broke down for a minute, because it was all terribly stiff up a live, of course, you know, in those days. But I was not as red-eyed as some mothers. Um, Sweetheart, I love you so much, and I feel quite happy and confident about going. I'm sure she didn't. And I know that soon we shall be together again. Take care of your good self. Um, I still remember my mother in a Kelly Jean dress, waving from the end of the platform. And I was very proud of the fact that she was the one who ran the fastest, so I could see her, you know, long after everybody else. At Banbury, the first stop, little Susan Lawson, age five, asked, is this Canada yet? I mean, this showed really how children had absolutely no idea of what was before them. Um, some of them thought they would arrive in America the next day, if not the next night. And, of course, a lot of others didn't even know uh, where they were going, and sometimes little brothers teased them as to where they might be going. We ended up at Rankin Hall, uh, Liverpool University, which is a hall of residence for women's students. Um, <coughs> and uh, Daphne Duncan remembers weeping on the turn of a magnificent stairway the night we spent in Liverpool. Felicity... Um, she was 12, and she had to look after her sisters of nine and three and four-year-old Martin, the one who got, got the letter. And this is what she writes, and it's very difficult not to be emotional for me, having been one of the party, to read this. Um, the four of us perched in our beds alone in a still sunlit dormitory. I think that was the bleak moment when I realised that nothing would be the same again. And, of course, it wasn't. The voyage um, was interesting. Um, although ostensibly travelling tourist class, that sort of third class, on this old one-funnelled Cunarda, the space allocated to the Oxford party was so deep in the bowels of the ship that really it should have been called steerage, which was, of course, the lowest level where many of the um, immigrants to America had, had gone over the years. 
Um, soon after boarding, Dr. Franklin, who was sort of organizing as well as doctor, handed us our um, labels to say which cabins we'd be, we'd be in. Some of the cabins were about the size of a railway compartment. Um, none of them had portholes. And even some of the children who had never been on a liner before found the space surprisingly restricted. Felicity again, the amount of room for moving about the cabin um, is about as much as there is in our china cupboard. And, and most of the spare space, there was um, a sort of quadrangle in the middle, but most of that was taken up um, by um, mysterious big metal crates about the size that you get, you know, on railway carriages, uh, goods trains, you know, um, very large, um, um, the size of about three or four of the cabins. And it was rumoured to contain gold bullion bound for Fort Knox. And afterwards, we heard that that was absolutely correct. <laughs> so most of our space was taken up by gold going to America. Uh, Ethel Goodwin to her husband. As you had warned me about the cabin, I was not surprised by their pokiness. But many were, and Mrs. L burst into tears. Many as have wished for a cinematograph, as it was called in those days, of the show, to enable our husbands to get glimpses of the amazing conditions and the way we are living. But perhaps it's as well you never see it. The first day was an awful muddle, and the sight of so many children appalled the Cunard people, that's the stewards. Our cabins were all in one block round a big square. You can imagine the atmosphere, not a porthole open in the whole of the ship, because of blackout conditions. Oxford would certainly collapse at the sight of D-deck. Lines of nappies, suitcases in piles outside cabins around the square, mothers bathing and feeding babies in each corner, children playing snap in groups, toddlers pushing animals and engines in and out of the mob. Uh, Felicity again. We are woken at six o'clock by the crying babies, and outside the cabins is like a flag day with the nappies all drying. You can imagine this with no, no air. Uh, the only air we get is what blows down from the deck, and the heat is unbearable. Ethel again. The boat is a very old one and rather dirty, and though it has nurseries, it's not very convenient. There are not half enough bathrooms for the third class, and it's quite a walk to them. Then the deck and the dining rooms are a mile from the lavies for the children and from the cabins. I didn't expect to have to grumble like some of us do. Well, I, I, you know, I shouldn't grumble like some of us do. In fact, she tries to put on a brave face, and it's really quite fun. Um, but the noise. Um, after getting up in the morning before breakfast, the tinies career around the square, shouting merrily all the, uh, with voices as loud as Richard's. That was one of her sons. Um, a more, another more serious note, she overheard a stu two stewardesses talking. And remember, this is right down in the bowels of the ship. And one said to the other, looking at the children, of course, if we were torpedoed, they'd none of them have a chance. So there was a risk. We zigzagged across the Atlantic to avoid the submarines. And so it took 10 days. It was 10 days to get across. We had one awful time when it was so rough that there were only nine people to lunch. Um, and it was particularly hard for the mothers, of course, particularly those still feeding their babies. Um, <clears throat> and there was always the risk. Uh, we had to wear our lifeboats 
belts all the time, of course. And one bunk boat had been sunk earlier. Um, our convoy, which had been escorting us from the mouth of the Mersey, left us at about 10.30 that night, actually. That was about two, two or three nights after we got out, about 800 miles from land. So then we were on our own. Dr. Franklin explained to us that we were now supposed to be out of danger of enemy activity. Um, but there it was. And actually, um, there were reports in the uh, July issue of the Oxford Times and the Oxford Mail. <clears throat> it read like this. The liner was four days out in the Atlantic when an enemy submarine fired two torpedoes at it. They both missed, but the escape was narrow, for one of the tinfish passed within six feet of the boat. Speed was increased, but the danger was passed, for the submarine did not dare surface because of the warships in charge of the convoy. There seems to be a, a bit of a sort of mistake there, because we had no, no warships at that point. Depth charges were dropped, but whether they were successful is not known. And a later report in the London Daily Mail said there was only one thing we could do, cram on speed. We certainly made the boilers wheeze. Wendy Clark um, yet says, hauling small boys from the stern deck railing just as torpedo passed yards astern of us, <coughs> depth charges thrown in white canisters over the side <coughs> to explode with spine-jarring crumps. But rather typically, um, uh, this is real Oxford of those days anyway, Ethelwyn's husband wrote to his wife from Oxford on the 24th of July. That was actually the day we'd landed. In Monday's edition of the Oxford Mail, there was a story that your ship had been attacked by a submarine when you were four days out in the Atlantic. But most people in the common room were inclined to treat this with suspicion. <laughs> I don't know anywhere else whether that might happen, <laughs> except perhaps in a Cambridge SCR. A sailor told me, who was on the ship that I met afterwards, told me that he couldn't recall any torpedoes at all, so perhaps the Dons were right. <coughs> um, it, Helen sums this up this quite well as why the parents sent us um, and why the, what they were concerned with. Um, torpedoes were never mentioned. Perhaps that was quite right. I mean... Um, Concern had been shown about our education and our accents. Sometimes I rather unfairly say that the North Oxford parents were more worried about their children losing their North Oxford accents than they were about being torpedoed, but that's very unkind, I think, because they were always worried. <clears throat> Little consideration, she thinks, had apparently been given to the extreme danger of an unescorted ship crossing the Atlantic. Were we incredibly lucky to have escaped the fate of the city of Benares, also evacuating children, which was sunk later that summer? Felicity, writing to her parents, who she knew would be worried, I don't want you to worry, because I'm going to look after Martin and Jenny and Zig and myself, that's the four of them, very carefully, and I want you to look after Mummy, and Mummy to look after you, and I want you to remember, if anything does happen to us, I think you're not... All children ever thought of that. Nothing was going to happen to them. But she did say, if anything does happen to us, we will always meet together in heaven. That should be all, always be the belief of everybody, and God is merciful. And then she sort of worried about what she says. But I don't want to depress you, because I'm sure the war will end soon. Of course, news from England was very scanty all those ten days. The BBC broadcasts were only relayed, relayed to the first class. 
um, the important items in each 9pm uh, news um, were stuck up on the third class notice board. And Felicity noticed the fact, the German invasion of Britain begins on Friday. She also wrote that she thought that was a bit optimistic of the Nazis. We had great fun on the boat, despite when it was rough. And the Rhodes Scholars who were going home were particularly good to us because the sing-songs were too late for us. We had to go to bed at a, um, you know, a, a quite, a quite early, some of the younger children, very early. So they organised informal sing-songs, and those were really in, very fondly remembered. We had no idea that the Rhodes Scholars were sad, um, and there was heartbreak for a lot of them. Um, this is what one of them wrote. About this time, the summer of 1940, we began to receive a bit of mail from the American consulate. The general suggestion seemed to be that we should go home. The warden, that's the warden of Rhodes House, put no compulsion of any kind on us, but he was frank to explain the situation was grave, and in his opinion, it would be wise to go. I think I can speak for all of us when I say no one wanted to leave. A million roots had to be pulled up, a romancer, too, had to be rounded off tempo presto. Oxford wins a person in such a quiet way that he hardly realises what has happened until he has to leave. That's a Rhodes Scholar. When a word got round that was a famous film star on board, um, some of you older ones may remember the name, um, some of the girls made an expedition to the first-class deck where they were actually received very graciously by Elizabeth Bergner, who was a refugee herself. Talks with members of the crew were very instructive. Uh, chief engineer, happy to speak about all the birds um, to four of us girls. Um, very nice and friendly man with blue eyes. Um, told us a lot about the seabirds, especially the stormy petrol, which, of course, I, I spelled like the, the gasoline. <laughs> and they called them Mother Carey's chicks. And then he said the gannet colony is getting smaller and smaller. Uh, to amuse ourselves during the day, we started wrestling matches, um, which was a great interest to the um, people on the upper-class deck who could watch us. Um, it was very useful because there was a big hatch that was just the shape of a, of a wrestling or boxing ring. And uh, so um, another girl and I began, and we were soon joined by two boys. Uh, and yes, there was mixed wrestling, um, and the girls usually won. Um, and, and, but when the girls had to leave to bath the babies, we all had our duties, um, uh, the boys fought the boys. And um, I felt very proud because it was my idea to have the wrestling. Um, but I did wonder, actually, uh, what my parents would have thought about it. I don't think they would have approved of mixed wrestling. But obviously, it wasn't very popular with some of the adults. They didn't like the look of girls and boys wrestling together. Um, so what did they do? They told us girls we could watch, and they got boxing gloves so that the boys could have proper two minutes rounds of boxing um, that people could look at. I don't think we were very interested, actually. The icebergs were absolutely glorious. I mean, not only had very few of us been across an ocean, but these, um, I shall always remember them. I know, I remember exactly the shape and everything of them. They were really lovely. A little seven-year-old was told that um, there's a fairy and a dragon in there. 
Well, finally, we sighted land. This was actually on the 17th of July. Um, we saw Newfoundland, and we had, to, of course, to go up, up, the, up the river, the St. Lawrence. Um, as we neared uh, Quebec, um, Dr. Uh, Fulton took the opportunity um, to um, cable home and um, encode. Everything was encoded because everything was censored. You couldn't talk about a boat or anything or a ship. And so he wrote, um, this is uh, actually to the Hugh Jones family. Um, Oxford goods arrived in Quebec in good condition yesterday. And that was all it said, telegram. So there we, there we were, um, arriving in Quebec. Um, and... It meant that there had been 11 days before our parents or the husbands of mothers going heard about this. Uh, obviously imagining all sorts of things, especially with the rumours about the torpedoes. Uh, we were told to get up at half past five, which of course quite early for some of the babies, and we actually got off the ship um, at five... Uh, well, uh, we... we um, got off the ship at 9 o'clock at night. And I remember Anne Macbeth, she said afterwards, it was her seventh birthday. Shock, horror. People on the quay were speaking French. I had expected an English-speaking country. And um, it, I shall always remember that coming in off the, off the ship, actually, because... Um, the British Tommies were waiting to go back on our boat. Um, <clears throat> and um, they welcomed us and uh, sang Roll Out the Barrel as we arrived, which is very moving. And um, <clears throat> they threw up toffees, uh, uh, sorry, they threw off up Canadian scents to us, and we sent some toffees down to them. Well, finally, we got on the train for Montreal because we were due to stay at McGill University in Montreal. And um, it was 11.40 at night when we finally left. This is having got up at 5.30. It had uh, 22 coaches and one engine. And it was what was known as colonist car accommodation with polished wooden seats. Uh, fortunately, they were able to hand out some pillows um, and so, uh, the younger children were able to lie full length on the seats. Of course, we couldn't. And uh, some of the boys were up in the, in the ruggage, luggage racks which, racks, which were quite comfortable. Um, I remember a little boy sleeping soundly with his head on my lap all the time. And it was actually, um, he called himself Ig. It was Charles Flory, actually, um, son of um, the famous penicillin Flory. And his sister Park also went. There is quite a good description of the children going in a, a recent book about um, Flory and Heatley, the mould on Dr. Flory's um, coat. Well, we were news in Montreal, um, having left Oxford, of course, with no publicity because of the security restrictions. I know my brother wrote at the time, we were met by many reporters who took our photographs and asked us questions. I did not have anything to say. Thank goodness, as they wrote it all down wrong. And then, inevitably, children were asked about air raids. 
Well, few of them had any. We, of course, living in Oxford, had no experience of areas at all. All we had did, of course, was go down into the um, uh, shelters um, or a safe place in the house when the, when the sirens rang. And one of the boys um, told the reporters, we don't go to any shelters. In fact, some of the old ladies don't get up when the air aid warnings are given because if they got up and came downstairs, they would probably get pneumonia. Um, and then there was another little girl. I'm not sure I like your trains very much. Six-year-old girl apparently told a star reporter. You know, there's very little privacy on your trains. But she was only six. Um, now, in England, we have compartments. And then her friend interrupted her and said, Betty, um, you mustn't say things like that. People might be fond of their trains here. You know, besides, they have ice water. This was on the trains, which, of course, we never had. Well, we arrived at the Royal Victoria College at McGill University, where we were very pleasantly welcomed by some of the volunteer um, students who looked after us. Uh, and we were four nights in Montreal waiting for our visas um, and also um, confirming that it would be all right to go to um, New Haven, um, the home of Yale University, um, if we had... We were in quarantine for measles, but everything finally um, went all right. Um, while we were in um, um, Montreal, because we were news there as well, we couldn't sort of even go into the shops without somebody, um, you know, playing the piano, God save the king, as it was in those days. Um, we went for a picnic lunch into the um, university park, and I remember we had grab bags, and they had bananas in them, and I could see the people looking in through the railings, because it was closed except for us, and looking at these children like monkeys eating their bananas. It felt just like monkeys in the zoo. Um, so July 24th, 1940, was for many of us a historic day. And it was evening. Um, uh, oh... Yes, reporters again, after half an hour, half an hour, and America came and said, what do you think of America? Well, that would be difficult for some young children, but not for Dragon Boys, no. Dragon Boys told them exactly what they thought about America, even if they'd only been looking out of the window for half an hour. Because, why? Because, because they had experience of Hollywood films um, and enabled them to give boys uh, perfectly satisfactory accounts of what America was like, which probably about... Chicago gangsters and so on. Um, when we got to New Haven, um, uh, we were reported again. This was one of them. Refugees find New Haven in land, uh, New Haven in land holding promise of peace, and England's new generation here to live as Americans. And once we boarded the buses, people came and shouted out and said, um, you know, send us some more, whatever. We, we didn't like being called refugees. We weren't refugees, we were evacuees. Um, but it was better than being called the Oxford Group, which we didn't like at the time, which some of you are old enough remember what that was. Um, they, they commented on the boys' trousers, which were rather long, and the girls' straw hats, and the sandals. They thought they were amazing. Um, well, when we got to New Haven, the mothers and young children were taken to the Children's Community Centre, while the rest of us were boarded at the Yale Divinity School. Um, it was very, very hot. It was even hot for New Haven and hot and humid for New Haven, which is always humid in the summer. Um, it was the home for the majority of the children until hosts were selected for us. 
Uh, now, the, it, was, it was very good, this. I mean, you just have to compare what it was like for the British evacuees going to places in England. The parents, prospective parents, there were twice as many of them wanting to adopt us at, in New Haven, at Yale, than, than there were children. Um, so they could be fairly particular. And they were um, observed um, by the children's placement officers, because the children's center was staffed by social workers. And we had psychological tests. But I rather suspect that while we were doing the tests, they were talking to us to see you know, what kind of children we were like. So this is really compared with this country where children were lined up in the village hall and people pointed at the ones they wanted and the fat boys were left to the last, you know, and the thin girls were taken first. And then some were left, the ones that couldn't be placed because they wanted to be together, two or three children together, or, or some of the fat boys. And, and they were just dragged around with the billeting officer who told people they had to have them. So we were very, we were very fortunate. And I think this is why so much of it was successful. But no one had heard from their families for three weeks. Um, so when the 30th of July, the first letters came from home, that was great. Um, Swarthmore was very welcoming. I'm sorry, I don't really have time to talk about them, but they, they were very good about it. That was, again, Rhodes Scholars. Um, uh, some, some placements, Helen... Um, left, leaving her older brother behind. Early in August, Dan and Louise Darrow took me into their family. Four daughters and a baby son. And the experience of life as an American began. So for some of the children, there wasn't only necessary adjustment to foster parents, but often the acquisition of a brother or sister for the first time. Uh, in some cases, this was easy. For others, it just took a little bit longer. And um, Heather particularly pays tribute to her sister Mary, suddenly presented with an alien sibling that was her foster sister, treated as an equal in the family, shared her room, her clothes, her friends, and who, because of the difference of educational systems, were far more advanced in such important matters as Latin and hockey, Mary ever, by word, deed, or gesture, evinced the slightest sign of jealousy. And so this went on. My brother was rather unlucky. He was 12, and he caught the measles. Um, and he was due to go with me to the Beecher Hogan's, who were absolutely wonderful foster parents. Um, he'd actually had measles. We both had measles when we were little, but he still got it. Uh, and the other children were rather annoyed because they didn't want to catch it. But if they'd known where he would have ended up in the unimproved New Haven Hospital, they might have been more sympathetic. And because of strict hospital rules, Peter's meeting with his new foster parents took place in very bizarre circumstances. The, the Hogans were told that they could see him if they were completely enveloped in white sheets. Um, and it was, I've got a picture of it in my book. It was fortunate that uh, Peter was an extrovert boy, not of a nervous disposition, and showed no fear when these two strange ghost-like figures, looking like members of the Ku Klux Klan, approached his bedside. Because he could see nothing except slits with little eyes looking through. And uh, they got no children of their own. I mean, what do you say? What would you think you would say to a little boy you were going to adopt for how many years? I don't know. Um, and you had to wear these sheets and things. You know, I mean, you knew it would be a bit frightening. But sure, uh, Cece was wonderful. Would you like some ice cream? 
broke the ice. Um, not all the hosts were given what they expected. <clears throat> I mean, one was expecting an adolescent boy and, and got a little girl and a pregnant mother. Um, I'd, I'd love to be able to, to read you a lot of this, but there isn't really time, but it's in the book. <clears throat> uh, the daughter of a family, the only daughter of a family of six children. Uh, um, her, she had five brothers. She wrote later about her experiences and her amazing mother. <clears throat> she was on the phone. Jim! I'm not giving to going an American accent because I, I can't do it. Do we have room for four more? Mother's voice could be heard all over the considerable first floor of our old house, as was written by the daughter. Such a question in most families would be answered with a second question, more what? But not in ours. Mother meant, did we have room for four more children? I listened in amazement as my father, without even getting out of his favourite chair, replied, I should think so, but I don't know if I could really afford to buy more clothes. It isn't hard to remember 50 years isn't so long when the year you were remembering. This was, uh, we had a 50th reunion and I asked people to write in about the experiences that she's writing this in, in, um, uh, in, in later. It was my last year of growing up, but mother's question and father's answer gave us a new beginning, a step into today that some of us have been able to hold on to. Some could hardly wait for mother to get off the phone. For more? Gosh, aren't six enough? I'm not giving up my room. Boys, do you suppose they're girls? So mock tragedy set in briefly until one of the older boys alleged they might be older girls. Great relief spread across their faces. So there was some um, Felicity with five brothers. I suddenly had three stepsisters and a stepbrother. So there we were. Um, there was a lot happening in that way. The new parents, of course, wrote reassuring letters back to their children. Um, my own foster parents, they've been here a week and seem quite at home now. We have placed the health of the children in the hands of the best pediatrician in New Haven. I'm trying to think of questions you might ask and trying to answer. We want you to know we consider ourselves trustees of your son and daughter. And as we have no children of our own, they will be a son and daughter to us until you send for them. If there's anything that you particularly want us to do for the children, or anything that you particularly, um, any idiosyncrasies of the children that we should know about, and so on, it goes on at length. And um, Hazel Rankin, she had um, um, teeth that needed attention, so they were going to be put um, in um, special um, uh, you know, help for her teeth. Um, we shall take her along to our paediatrician for a thorough examination before school starts. We are turning over to one of our leading orthodontists the information concerning the regulation of her teeth. So these, these sort of very welcoming letters, but a little bit sort of puzzlement, obviously. And, and, and the language, there's, they say there's no language barrier, but I, I, I wrote a dictionary of English and American words that were different, and it, it, it was about... 350 words. So um, some stayed in Toronto, of course, and some went on to Swarthmore. And we really, I mean, it's amazing what those foster parents did for us, I think. 
Because I think some thought, well, perhaps it'll be a year or two. In uh, my case, it was four, my brother's five. Some six had children from another family, six years. So it was not easy. And then the schools. I remember when at five I could at last go to the big school with the older ones. I was in the kindergarten class, and yes, we had to learn to kiss the flag if we ever allowed it, allowed it to touch the floor. Um, school was an enormous co-ed high school, for one. Um, I was the only English pupil and object of much interest, because actually um, most of the, um, the Yale parents paid for the children to go to private schools, which was very good of them. But Helen was in a big family um, of six, um, and, and obviously they couldn't afford, so she went there. And um, it's certainly different, and a lot of time spent discussing customs, food, weather, and words. Um, she told me that because there were many of Irish descent in the school, she just couldn't understand, I think she still can't, um, why they blamed her for the potato famine. But this was one of the difficulties, you know, that one didn't, children weren't on the same wavelength. Um, and there was another who was, um, uh, yeah, she said that um, until Pearl Harbor, when the Americans came into the war, um, and they were definitely either indifferent or didn't want America to come into the war, the papers had news from one, London in one column and Berlin in the other. Um, but the, um, Letters home, of course, we, uh, when I was away at school, I had to do two letters, one to my parents and one to my foster parents every Sunday. Um, our country summer house is in the middle of the country. You really wouldn't call it country. You would call it jungle, spelled J-U-N-G-E-L. It is strange because wherever you walk, somebody says, look out for poison ivy. Because we don't have poison ivy here. It seems to be all over Connecticut. Um, <clears throat> Please don't think I'm forgetting you or do not like you. Um, because she was only 10. I love you with all my heart, and more if there could be such. I can remember you all, your expressions, E-X-P-R-E-C-E-N-S, your faces and your voices, without looking at photographs. And I'm just hoping to get back to England. The length of the stay from the ch uh, for the children varied um, from two years to six, as I said. Um, everything was very secretive. Um, I was offered a berth on a ship, but it was called a nice opportunity. Uh, the, the, any cables had to be um, restricted, especially if they referred to ships. My brother Rodney was born in 1943, and I didn't know that I had a baby brother for over two weeks because my parents had unfortunately put Rodney Beecher, he was named after Beach, my guardian, Rodney Beecher arrived safely. That could have been a ship. <clears throat> so parents at home signed uh, forms releasing the United States Committee for the Care of European Children and the foster parents have been living with any liability from the time they left to the time they got home. And, of course, they could have been torpedoed on the way home. Uh, some of us had really a, a more dangerous journey on the, the way back, so it was lucky we all got home. Um, Hosts were really quite reluctant to 
let go their charges, but they knew they had to. But, you know, having a child perhaps came at three or four, five, six, and stayed for six years, you know, they would be part of the family and very much loved. So one was sort of writing, do you think it's right that they should come back when the flying bombs are around, which they were, well, that was when I came back. And they had this marvelous Marjorie Case who understood the feelings of the foster parents having to say goodbye to their children, their foster children. So it, was, it wasn't an easy time. I, w I was 14 when I left um, uh, England in 1940. Um, and I, so I was ready, wanting to come back before the war was over because I felt guilty and I wanted to join the Wrens, the Women's Naval Service. But um, my, when I asked about the vacancies, my mother wrote back and, and said that this was November 43, that the Wrens were all full up and there was nothing in the Wrens that I could do. And I could be a cook in the Acts, the Women's Army, or a nurse. And I, gosh, I thought, my goodness, isn't there anything else? So I wrote, and my mother said, well, if you get into the university, that's Oxford, you'll be exempt. <coughs> so that sounded quite useful. So I got, you had to get entrance to a reputable American college to um, be exempted from the university exams. Uh, and I got into VASA. So then I came and I had to do the St. Anne's uh, exams. I came back in 1943 from New York on a Dutch cargo, cargo boat. It was in a large convoy. It had troop ships and oil tankers on the inside for greater safety. Um, and the Battle of the Atlantic uh, was still on because we had just taken Paris. So when Paris was taken, there was nowhere for the U-boats. So those of you who've been watching the, this has been a series on, on Channel 4 about it, um, there was nowhere for the U-boats to go um, because um, the continent was beginning to get occupied by Allied forces. So they went out into the Atlantic. So there they all were. So we had to sleep in our clothes and everything, and um, it wasn't a, a, a very easy time. And um, I, I remember being up on deck once. Oh, yes, when the, um, any um, mines or anything went off as they did in, in the Irish Sea because we were coming back through mined water. Um, they, um, it was like actually that your own boat was being hit. Some of you who were in the services may, know, may in fact know this. That anyway, underwater of course sound carries very much. So having um, a, a ship hit a mine in your convoy um, did, did feel as if your whole boat was going down. And I remember being up on deck, and, and one of the crew says, said to me, well, there's one gone. And that was unfortunately a tanker carrying oil that was blown up by um, a mine um, just, just behind us. We were lucky, because we being a, a, a sort of small ship, uh, we, went o we went over the mines, we, but it was the big, big ships that hit them. <coughs> There have been quite a lot of stories of, of journeys home, some you know which were actually fired upon and so on. I have got in my book an account of, of my um, journey back. So as I say, the dangers of the return journey were sometimes a bit um, tricky. 
homecoming, separations from home and family, as I say, lasted from two to six years. And they didn't all end happily. Though we'd had counseling in America in 1940, um, being sure that we were properly placed. Absolutely no counseling at all for parents who hadn't seen their children for up to six years. Um, for Oxford people, they weren't very intelligent, I think. I mean, some of them thought, couldn't understand why their children didn't love them anymore. A child going at four and coming back at eight or ten, you know, they hardly recognized their parents, let alone were willing to fall into their arms and kiss them all over. <clears throat> and it was very difficult. They yearned for the mother they'd left behind. Um, and it wasn't easy. And, of course, it, it depends on the child. I mean, some children were able to adjust very quickly, um, but others never did. They never did. I mean, so, uh, somebody told me they never really were able to relate to their parents again. For the younger ones, um, the only home they could remember was in America. Uh, Helen Macbeth. To the older one, she writes, America was the funny place, but for the younger children who'd left home under the age of two or three, England was the funny place. I was in a daze, very tired after the journey. I'd just woken, I don't know which. Somebody had a flash. I saw Daddy and I recognized him immediately. We all stumbled out of the carriage. I hugged and kissed Daddy. I was a great shock to him. I was so tall. And then I saw Mummy but I did not recognize her. She has white hair and looks very tired. All the women look so tired um, <clears throat> at the, towards the end of the war. Um, and then school. Some who'd gone to the sort of freedom of American schools. It's more like a reform school than anything else, terribly formal. Ugh. A lot of people who are in my grade, my form, when I left, are still are still there. At first they treated me like a museum piece. Now they have actually condescended to speak to me. My brother's first words on my return to Oxford in September 1943, he's a little Yankee. And at the Dragon, you can imagine. Yank, yank, yank! Um, made him <laughs> adopt an Oxford accent pretty quickly. <laughs> It's hard to know if I remember this because the story is often retold, being six and a half on return. Uh, I was missing front teeth. I also gained a black eye on the boat home. I was full of true American self-confidence on Oxford Station. When clutching my panda, I marched ahead of my father and Anne and went up to this woman and introduced myself to her as her daughter. Mother had been looking out for us above my head. I did get the right mother... Yet I don't think that in America I would remember her. The sight of this six-year-old tough must have been quite a shock to her. One girl wrote, I don't think we talk much between ourselves about our experiences. I think this was very true. A lot of them bottled up uh, this difficulty of having gone and having come back. And children tend to keep miseries to themselves. Um, this is Felicity saying, after the war, the four of us were separated by boarding school and college. I don't remember talking to the parents much about it either. Perhaps it was a reluctance on both sides, with the relatives or new friends. Guilt at my comfy war kept me quiet. 
And how did one describe it all, anyway? I felt outlandish enough with a smart American clothes, a noisy American accent. The, Ameri um, the accent got discarded pretty quickly, but I remember Jenny and I shared a new-look creation which shuttled between St Anne's and Somerville, depending on whose turn it was to wear it. So the clothes, I remember going to the Bailey or Boys Club with heels that long and um, a new-look skirt and uh, being a subject of great interest. Um, so this was another thing that made us guilty. Children from London had been evacuated to the safety of Oxford. And so the contemporaries said, well, why on earth did you go? Um, but in many cases, it, it, there was no choice. The children were told they were going. We did have a choice. Um, uh, Fifty years on, Felicity writes, um, although the, the memories are partly and mostly too far away, I don't think I would have missed it for anything. I think a lot, most of us felt that. <clears throat> I realised how lucky I'd been, writes Helen. She was the one at the state school. To have spent those years in the United States broadening my outlook and receiving so much kindness and generosity from everyone, especially the Darrows whom she lived in. We've exchanged many visits over the years, kept in touch regularly with letters, and now her children, our children have made contact too. It's been a lifelong experience. Um, it's interesting that some of the children who didn't sort of feel ever again that they belonged here in England, um, we, I had this reunion in 1990, and, and some of the people, was, I got some marvellous letters afterwards as I organised it, saying how much they appreciated it. For the first time, they were able to get it off their chest. They were able to talk to others who had had the same experience because they never really wanted to talk about it to either siblings who had been left behind and certainly not to their parents. Um, so she, had felt, she felt very lucky. Um, <clears throat> Ten of those who left Oxford, in, this was in 50 years on, ten of those who left Oxford in 1940 uh, lived in Canada or the United States, ten in Australia, New Zealand, and other places outside um, Europe. Um, so my brother never came back, except to do his Yale thesis. He was here for a year. But um, it, 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 they, didn't, they didn't feel that they belonged. So um, I, d I dedicated this sort of collection of memories of war our wartime journey and the years which followed um, to um, the, those transatlantic foster parents and their families who opened their doors and their hearts to us. And although invasion never came, it was a near thing. And there are few of us who didn't um, gain from our visit and leverage our lives as, as a con consequence. Um, I think I just have time to um, mention the um, what one. American woman wrote the, the one who wrote who took the six children in um, just to say a little bit about the end of it 
they, she felt we were fairly nice to each other at the table while the children from England were with us. They were a precious loan to my parents, generous, willing, sociable parents who began to treat their own children more like suitable young adults. We were growing up after all, but mostly the English were very nice. They made the American adolescent boy a fairly clumsy and noisy creature, but viewed with love. So that this was something that she felt was, would go on and on. I mean, those children always kept in touch. And mother also found time to take children to friends who lived in England and had children so that the bridge to America seemed less. So it, it, it was um, I, I think an experience obviously for both, for the foster parents some like ours who had never had any children so that was certainly an experience. <clears throat> and she wrote the, the, the girl, the daughter of the family that became 10. Mother was still in touch with her English children. She never mentioned the hundreds of meals and piles of laundry. She only remembered those dark-eyed children. Her war effort <coughs> made her a godmother, not a grandmother. And nowadays when things look a little empty around my house, I just think of that extended family and remember the soft voices, the clean accent, and the pleasant ties that bind. Just a little postscript. Oh yes, got this letter that was sent with me back um, by my American guardian when I came back in, in um, the summer of uh, uh, 44. Dear Lilla, that was my mother's name. Here's your Anne. I hope neither you nor she will ever be sorry that she came to America. Affectionately yours. But quite recently, for the first time, I was approached by a stranger in North Oxford who said that it had been awful for parents to accept the invitations made to Oxford children. She didn't approve at all. She said that we should have, you know, sat the war out and been like everybody else and not accepted. But we thought it was an adventure. And we didn't really realize at our age what, how awful it must have been for our parents who made the decision. And partly, of course, because it was less mouths to feed. I mean, that at least was something that we were doing, getting away uh, so there was more food for others. And it did save us being brought up Nazis, which was a real threat, um, or even sent to concentration camps. I mean, some of the <coughs> professors and so on were on the Gestapo blacklist. So they and their families would have been in real danger if there'd been invasion. And from my point of view, leaving snobby North Oxford, and it really was, um, it made me more broad-minded. Um, and I was certainly glad I went, and I never would have missed it. Thank you.